All right, so I do have a couple announcements for you. The first one is we are starting a new ministry called Grief Share. And Grief Share is uh, seven, eight weeks? What? Yeah, uh, it's in front of me. She gave it to me. 13! <sighs> Look, I got this puppy and it got spayed this week. Okay. <laughs> It's 13 weeks, and if you have had a, a loss in your life, whether it's recent or you know years ago, and you're still working through that, this is a ministry that helps you to work through that. You'll come together with some other people, and you will walk through some of these things to help you deal with the grief, to move to a place of maybe even a bit of joy in your life as you start to go forward. And if you'd like to be part of it, you've got to uh, sign up and get things in because they try to keep these smaller. And so if you want to sign up, I think you have to do that by next week, right? It's the last week to sign up. Uh, there are flyers at the Welcome Center in the back, so you can grab one of those and look at it. And if you have been thinking about that, maybe it just kind of piques your interest just a little bit, I would encourage you to go and grab one and look at it and, and check that out. Um, the second thing I want to tell you about, because I've got announcements too, uh, we're in this thing called Element University. It's starting on May the 4th. And again, I keep saying that's you know Star Wars Day, so may the 4th be with you. And we're going to talk Element University. And we're talking about uh, being the church in the midst of our culture. Uh, uh, sometimes that's really hard to know how to fit in because just about everything you watch on TV or hear in the media kind of makes you think that if you're a Christian, you need to be quiet, you can't engage at all. And this is a way where I'm going to talk about how the church can begin to engage in the world in ways that understand people's mindsets, our mindsets, and how to start to bring that together. We're going to do two weeks of that, and then we're going to take a break for a break for one week because over the weekend we're going to do this course we did a couple years ago. It's called Jesus, Sex, and Gender, and you can go into that one on on a Saturday, Friday night and a Saturday and walk through what that looks like. And then we will come back the week after that and do three more weeks on the backside, taking all the things we've done in those first weeks and bringing those together, and how we, if you are a believer, can start to engage culture hopefully in a way that listens and the gospel goes forward. So that's. Starts on Thursday, May 4th, 6 p.m. It'll last maybe an hour, hour and a half. If you have children who will have childcare for it, you don't need to sign up for Element U unless you have kids because we need to know how many childcare workers we need for it. So if you would do that, you can, can they sign up back with you? Okay, I got Sarah back there just going, say all the right things. Okay, so you can sign up with Sarah at the Welcome Center and let her know. The other thing you can also sign up for, if you would like, is on May the 5th, Cinco de Mayo, we'll be doing a trivia night. And at trivia, oh, yay, somebody's excited. Okay, so we're doing a trivia night. Now, trivia isn't where you get up by yourself and we ask you questions. You're in teams. And if you're like, but I don't have a team. That's great. You can still sign up on your own, and we will put you on a team. You will ask you questions. Together, your team will come up with answers. It's, it's a lot of fun. We're going to have a taco truck, so you can buy a meal at the taco truck. It's going to start at 5 p.m. You don't have to be here at 5 p.m., but we're going to open up at 5. That's when the taco truck's going to start. And then at 5.30, we'll do a kid's round, and the kids will go off to their classroom and hang out. And at 6 o'clock, we'll start the official adult rounds of trivia. We need you to sign up so we know how many people are coming, how many tables to put out, especially if you need childcare. So sign up for that. Again, we need to make sure we have enough people to watch kids. We don't want to put one person in there with 50 kids, and it's like mayhem. <laughs> like your puppy got spayed, and you don't have enough drugs. So there you go. <laughs> anyway, so sign up for all those things. Let us know. And I am going to make it through this message with a whole lot of passion and energy. 
church. I don't know. If you're a new element, welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables around the room. They look like this. And on the inside, you're going to get a little breakdown of what we're talking about, some questions to reflect upon what we talk about today. On the back, you get the verses in the Bible that we're going to go through. And on the bottom, you get a place to write down some notes. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events, and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, and it says this, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us to be a people who learn how to make that cry, that we would experience what your Spirit does as you adopt us and then teach us how to cry out to you in ways that really teach us who our Father is. So I ask that you would have us live in ways that glorify and honor you as we, as your children, live out in this world with the great joy you have provided us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing a series of the New Testament book called Galatians. This is week 14, and today we're going to start chapter 4. The book of Galatians is not like some other books in the New Testament. A lot of the books in the New Testament are typically written to a particular person or a church Galatians is written to an area of churches. Paul comes in, he plants these churches, talks about the grace and the goodness of God, and then he goes off to plant more churches. Where he is now, he's probably in jail at the time he writes this letter. But so he goes off to plant more churches, gets thrown in jail. When that happens, some other people show up. And they are from what I like to call the mothership. Uh, that would be the church in Jerusalem, uh, the one that's the original church. That's where they claim that they're from. They may be, they may be not, but they say, hey, we're from this. We have been sent, and believing in grace is not enough. You also have to follow the Old Testament law. you got to follow the dietary restrictions. You, if you're a male, you have to get circumcised in order to be part of the family of God. Now, I don't think these teachers coming in doing this were doing that for power. Some might have, but I think they probably had a zeal of wanting these people to be part of the people of God. But again, they're saying you have to do it this way way. I think the Galatians are becoming very scattered. It's like, what do I do? I do this? Do I not do this? Paul said this. They're doing this. What, what do we do? Because we really do want to please God. So Paul catches wind of all of this, and this is why he writes the letter. And he keeps going back to telling them, you are saved by grace. You trust in Jesus, his provision, you're saved. God brings you into his family. That's the only way it actually happens, is God doing the work himself. It's not your works. It's his works. So if you have a Bible open to Galatians chapter 4, if you're using one of the ones at Element, that's on page 632. Now, I almost simply called this message adoption, but I actually called it adoption, Paul's two cents. There used to be this old thing that was like my two cents is my opinion, but Paul in the verses we look at will use the word sent, S-E-N-T, twice. I thought it was a fun play on words. Nobody gets my humor. <laughs> Whatever, you know. Half, least of all my wife half the time. She's like, that's not funny. I'm like, okay, I'll think of something else. Anyway, uh, so we're going to end this talking about adoption. We're going to talk about Paul's two cents. <laughs> 
whatever. Uh, adoption in the ancient world was very important, and I think it has a much greater uh, scope than we even think about today in our adoption. So Galatians chapter 4, 1 through 7, we're going to read this and we'll talk about it. Paul says this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So in this whole idea of adoption, Paul brings us together so we would understand it with these two different sense that God does. Verse 4, God sends his son. Verse 6, God then sends the spirit. So we want to talk about this. The first one, first sent, verse 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. If you go through the New Testament, you will see different authors try and make these legal arguments. In the book of 1 John, uh, verse, chapters 1 and 2, John will talk about how Jesus is our advocate before the Father. It's like he is our defense attorney that stands in our place. Well, here, Paul is making a legal argument that God sent the Son. Well, where did the Son go? The Son went into the world. For what purpose did He go into the world? To redeem those in the world. What were the desired results that we might receive full adoptions as sons. Now, adoption as sons in the Greek text, that's one word. But our text constantly uses more than one because we just can't get our idea around it just with the simple idea of adoption. Actually, the 1984 version of the New International Version almost translates this the best because it says the full rights of sons because that's what that word means. Even though it's a single word in Greek, we can't get our head around it, so you have to use a lot of words to do that. Now, the people, when Paul writes this to, and they hear this, they're probably just blown away by what he's saying. In the Greco-Roman world, there is a legal transaction that takes place that's really not even normally done today. And so Paul, when he talks about this, when this idea of sonship, it's when a wealthy person who didn't have an heir would adopt somebody in to give them essentially everything. When the child reaches a certain age, the child gets everything. Francis Lyle writes this book. It's called Slave Citizens Sons. And this is what he says. The profound truth of Roman adoption was that the adoptee was taken out of his previous state and placed in a new relationship of son to his new father. Now, this is kind of what God does to his people in Israel. He brings them to himself. He's calling them his children. All his old debts were instantly canceled. And in effect, the adoptee started a new life as part of his new family. On one hand, the new father owned all the new offspring's property, controlled his personal relationships, and had the rights of discipline. This is while he was a child. On the other hand, the father was liable for the actions of the adoptee, and each owed the other reciprocal duties of support and maintenance. Why does the son come and die for our sins? Because God brings us in, and he takes responsibility for us, and so this is why Jesus dies in our place for our sins. And this is one of the greatest things that the Bible tells us, because most people only think of salvation in negative terms. Something taken off of us. My, Jesus died for me. My sins are forgiven. That's all we think of it. It's something taken off of. But Paul here says something is not just taken off of us, our guilt and our shame. Another legal part is something is then placed upon us because we don't just get a mere pardon. We get placed upon us adoption. 
we get to be brought in. There's a legal status where we become children of God. Legally, God looks at us like he looks at his own son, Jesus. And this is, means that we are accepted. We used the word justified a few weeks ago. Paul uses that. Now, a few years ago, it's interesting, this report comes out in the BBC News in their health section, and they found that a baby's cry matches its mother's language. And what they found that a newborn child just a couple days old will have a distinctive cry. They say it will mimic the sound of the mother. So if you've ever had a newborn and it drives you crazy, it's you. It's you. That's what, that's what it's telling you. So they studied 60 healthy children from French, French and German families, and they found out that each baby has its unique cry melody, like a, like a fingerprint. They each have that. And the sound patterns are mimicking the mother's voice. And this is, this is what they find. So the interesting thing is when I was putting this message together, I was talking to Michael Reed. They had just gotten their, their second child that they are working on adopting, and he was crying. And I'm like, oh, man, all babies have that wail. And he goes, well, each parent kind of knows what whale is theirs. And it's totally true. I have been in a room with like 20 people and a bunch of kids playing in the backyard. And one kid will start crying in the cacophony of voices. And a mom will go, that's my kid. And they will run outside. And you know what? Scientifically, it's true. It is totally true. That's, that's what happens. This report shows this. Parents, mothers especially, can pick out the sound of their crying infant in the midst of a bunch of other crying infants. And it's almost like Paul is saying that this is true of God's children as well. God can hear our cry out of the cacophony of voices in the world. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. There's a unique cry that the children of God have. It's a privilege that God adopts us, that God brings us in. We become sons and daughters and his spirit comes into our hearts causing us to make that cry. The cry identifies who we then belong to. It clarifies for others and ourselves who we belong to. We are children of God. And Paul is working through these arguments with the Galatians, and he realizes the Galatians have begun to doubt their status as God's children. So he points to this distinctive cry, this thing that the Spirit does in us, and reminds them, if a son, then an heir through God. That's about how God adopts us. Adoption brings us into family. Our modern word for adoption comes from a mid-14th century word, and it means to choose for oneself, to desire, to wish, to take by choice. And this is why we say that God chose us. God wanted us. Think about your messed up family. It's probably not really hard, but you didn't get to choose. You're just stuck in the middle of that. But God did get to choose. He chose you. Think of that. That's amazing, and that's humbling. John Piper once wrote this, the deepest and strongest foundation of adoption is located not in the act of human adopting humans, but in God adopting humans. And this act is not part of his ordinary providence in the world. It is at the heart of the gospel. Now, we talked a couple weeks ago about guardians, you know, when, they're, when Israel is underneath these, this guardian called the law. But Paul is saying that Logan was a babysitter for everyone until Jesus came and died in our place and redeemed us in himself. And now we're mature. Now we have full rights as sons. Now listen to these words with that in mind, okay? But he, that's the child, is under guardians until the man and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, what is that? That's the date set by the father. The fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
full rights as sons and daughters. Jesus in the gospel matures us so we don't have to live with the babysitter any longer. We can live by God leading us with his spirit. We get to be mature people in him. How? Okay, great, glad you asked. Sent number two, verse six. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul is showing this amazing parallel because the second sent is not the son. The second scent is the Spirit. The Spirit goes someplace to do something to bring about another result of the gospel. So like my elementary teacher says, put on your thinking caps. I'm going to walk you through this and I'll break it down, I think, pretty easily in just a minute. But I need to flesh this out. So when Paul says, if a son in verse 7, it implies that not everyone is a son or a daughter of God. Not every expression of human, uh, of human distress will make the sound and the cry that a child of God makes. People will cry out and it will sound different than people who trust in God do, whether it's culturally or socially speaking or spiritually speaking. When Paul starts chapter four, it's almost like he wants to come to grips with the difference between those who are adopted by God versus those who are just simply living in the orphanage of this world and its values. Prior to being adopted by God, we're in a state of enslavement. And this is why Paul has been pointing to Israel and their enslavement to the law. But the Galatians were not Israelites. What were they enslaved to? They were enslaved in the midst of paganism. And Paul says, in the same way, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. You may not have been enslaved to the law, but you're enslaved to these elementary principles of the world. People trying to interpret Galatians stumble over this all the time, but it really appears that Paul is talking about the basic elements of created order. He talks about how fallen humanity takes all the good things that God has ever made and we turn them into idols and we worship them. We turn food into gluttony. We turn sex into perversion. We turn music into country music. It's just, what do we... What are we doing, right? The basic elements created order, what? Money, sex, power, right? Elementary principles around us all the time. They are incredibly powerful. And we as humanity are constantly tempted to turn to these idols and begin to worship them as gods. And you might say, not me. I don't do that. That just proves to me how blind we all are. Paul says, apart from the redeeming work of Christ and what he does by trusting in him, apart from being a part of God's family, we're going to be enslaved to these powers that are beyond our control. This is why in verse 6, Paul says that through Christ, we can be set free from that by the gospel. But when we are set free, when the Son comes, when we believe, the Spirit then is not sent into the world here. He is sent into our hearts. See, the Spirit does not go to redeem because redemption has already been done in Christ. He goes to call out. So we have this result, the legal status of sonship because of what Jesus did. That's that first sent. But then you get a subjective experience. The, the Holy Spirit comes in and he moves us to a place where we begin to live in the sonship that we have received. We get to cry out, Abba, Father. Paul says, because you are sons, past tense, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Sonship at this point is already assumed. Hope I didn't lose you, okay? God sent the son into the world. God sends the spirit into our hearts. This means the son goes out to procure something objective through historical action. And I tell you this, Christianity is a truth claim about historical events that can be investigated just like any other event in history. That's what we believe. We believe it is historical. The result of the gospel, what Jesus does, procures for us the full rights as sons and daughters of God. 
But the Spirit essentially goes to a different realm. The Spirit goes inside to move us to begin to feel, to make that real to us. I have a friend who always says this to me. I don't feel like a Christian. I want to feel like a Christian. And it always kind of makes me go, I, I don't think you even know what you're asking. Because what Jesus does as the Son is makes us sons when we believe, whether we feel like it or not. And the Spirit, the more that we understand what the gospel is, the Spirit will take and appropriate that truth into our lives so we understand it. I'm not a big touchy-feely guy. Uh, I hugged people on Easter because it was Easter, and I got hugged a couple times this morning. And I'm like, yeah, it's great. I'm not a touchy-feely guy. I, I get that. But Paul says that the Spirit does do something experiential in us. So we get to claim what the Son has done over our lives, and the Spirit helps us experience that. So claiming what the Son has done, what does that mean? First off, if you feel defeated, if you feel abandoned, if you feel isolated, and you trust in Christ, well, none of those are true. You're not defeated. You're not abandoned. You're not isolated. You claim what the Son has done. You say, I am a child of God. I'm going to repeat. I'm going to remind myself of this truth. No matter what place I find myself in, I have a fact that I've trusted Jesus, and I will now live that out in my life no matter how I'm feeling. But then you have an experience of what the Spirit does. The Spirit, it's not something you claim. What you get to do is experience sonship. Let me try to explain this to you with uh, a story that preachers probably use way too much, and I'm going to use it today. But there's this parable called the parable of the prodigal son. And in this parable, Jesus tells the story of this kid. He goes to his dad, and he says, Dad, give me my portion of the inheritance. In this culture, that is very offensive. That is like saying, I wish you were dead. And so when his kid does this, he basically goes and he insults his family, his village, his people, and he takes that inheritance and goes off to a foreign land with people who despise him, but they're okay when he's got money. When the money runs out, they no longer want to be around him. And so the kid ends up in desperate straits. He has no money. He's trying to find a way to survive. He ends up taking care of pigs, which are unclean animals to his people. And yet he's looking at this going, man, I just want to eat the pig slop. That's how desperate I am. So he has Catches this plan in his head. My dad is good to the people who work for him. If I go back, I can just tell my dad, I'm gonna, I'll work for you. J just hire me and I'll work. I don't have to be your son. And he rehearses this speech in his head. Luke 15, verses 18 and 19. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, almost every preacher who talks about this story focuses on the son coming back to the father, and they say, this is repentance. And yes, repentance has the idea of returning home. This kid returns home, but he doesn't really return home in repentance. His repentance, it's faulty, and it's vague. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, although the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 is probably the best known and loved of all Christ's parables, the lesson it teaches us is often overlooked. Jesus was underlining the fact of the, that the reality of the love of God for us is the last thing in the world to dawn on us. As we fix our eyes upon ourselves, our past failures, our present guilt, it seems impossible that the Father should love us. Now, this is kind of how we started. We see our salvation from a negative, just our sins being taken off of us. And many Christians go through their lives with this prodigal type mentality where our concentration is upon my sin and look what I've done. And we're taught to be so introspective. Contrast that. 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. See, it's still talking about adoption, but where's the focus? It's on God. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. 
Ferguson writes this, like the prodigal, we have a native inability to believe that salvation is completely by grace and love. We're slow to realize the implications of this. We have the status as sons, meaning status given to us as sons, but we have the mindset of a hired servant. What the prodigal does is what we all do or what we assume, that we don't have a father-son relationship with God. What we have is an employer-employee relationship with God. And many times we say we believe we're saved by grace, by what God did, but we really don't believe it because we don't relate to Him that way. How do I know this? Well, look how, sens- look how sensitive we are to things like criticism, right? Look how sensitive we are to being told we're wrong. Even if you are wrong, we don't like to do that. Or looking embarrassed. We put walls up around ourselves so we don't have to feel embarrassed or think someone's taking advantage of us. You know, maybe someone comes in and doesn't give you the respect you think you deserve or you don't give somebody the respect they deserve. Maybe someone betrays you. Maybe you betray somebody else. Why does it take so long for us to get back to normal? Why? Why does everything hard feel like a psychological death in our lives? Why do we secretly compare to everybody else around us and say, well, I don't really do that. Why are we jealous of other people and yet won't even call it that? Because we don't have the guts to do that. It is because our identity is found in ourselves and what we do and not our identity as children of God. That's why. That's why. We don't believe we have the legal status. We don't experience it because if we did, we wouldn't be tossed about all the time in the way that we are. Ferguson says the son goes into the world and gives us the status as children, but we don't believe it. Like the prodigal, he comes home to his father and says, oh, dad, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. It's like he's in Wayne's world or something. I'm not worthy. It seems so humble, but it's actually an insult to the father. The prodigal goes to the father. The father restores him. And the kid keeps saying, I'm not worthy. And what he really means is, I cannot believe you are so generous to actually make me a son again. I cannot believe this. And that's not humility. It may look like humility. Oh, I'm willing to live as a hired servant, but it's an insult to the generosity of God. That's what it is. It's a way to not actually lose control of your life. God, I'm going to work it off. God, I will be a hired servant. Oh, I know my sin is bad, but I'm really going to work hard now. I'm not really going to trust in the salvation I have from you. I'm going to work into it so you will love me. That's not how it works. The more we are willing to admit that we have nothing, that we bring nothing to the table, that Jesus would give and do everything, we don't earn it, means we give up control. We have to give up control. One writer says this, there is all sorts of wickedness at the root of our low self-esteem. Ooh, ooh, it's so true. The reason Paul talks about the work of the Spirit is that it is a fact when you trust in Christ, God has adopted you into the family of Christ. But the Spirit comes in and He moves us to begin to understand it's true. And sometimes it's slow. Sometimes so as the Spirit moves us, maybe brought you to this place today to hear me talk about it because it is a slow process. But the Spirit moves us to a place where we begin to understand what that means. God sent His Spirit into our hearts to bring us the deep security that rests on the objective fact that Jesus died and rose in our place. Our sins are forgiven. We completely belong to Him. In the parable, the son comes in. He's not believing the father's grace. He's not believing that the father would be this good. And so he keeps trying to say, Dad, I'll do this. Dad, I'm not worthy. Dad. And you know what the father does? He kisses his son. Now, in this culture, when people did that, they would, they would kiss on the lips. So you got to stop talking. Don't do it to me ever. I would just be freaked out. Okay, but, but this is a metaphor for what God's spirit does. 
the Spirit comes in and helps us to experience the love of God in our hearts by crying, Abba, Father. That's the Father's kiss. This is something that's actually in addition to our sonship. Because you have been adopted, you sometimes do not experience your adoption. And God's Spirit wants to move us to the place where we experience that adoption. We can be accepted, and we sometimes don't even live that way. I told you back in the prayer series that Thomas Goodwin was this old Puritan preacher, and he tells this story of a, of a son with his father. And they're walking down the street, they're holding hands. The little boy knows, knows it's his dad, that his dad loves him. But he says, now the dad picks up the little boy and embraces him and swings him around and kisses his son. And this is what Goodwin says. He says, the boy is actually no more a son when he's being embraced and kissed than he was before, but there's a difference in the enjoyment of the status. And this is what the Spirit does. Teaches us to move to a place where we have enjoyment as our status as children of God. Charles Spurgeon actually preached an entire sermon on those four words. Don't worry, I'm not. The father kissed him. And he speaks of adoption. He says this, The son had the status waiting. The robe, the ring, the fatted calf were all back there, but he didn't believe it. So the father kissed him. The father kissed him. He sends his spirit. Now, I've got to be careful with this because our sin does warp our emotions. And we do not base our acceptance of God on our feelings. Well, I don't feel like God loves me. There's a danger in talking about this. Well, when Spurgeon talked about this, it's the Victorian age, and everybody was repressed in their emotions and their feelings, just like me. I would have been totally happy there. But today, we're the opposite. We come to a place today, and everybody's emotion crazy, right? Everybody's like, oh, if I don't have the feels, then God's love for me can't be true or real. The experience doesn't come by asking for an experience. Abba, Father, is a cry that comes from a passionate understanding of the gospel. We have to understand the gospel. It's not just learning to cry out. My friend Luke says these things to me all the time. I want to experience this. I want to do this. I'm like, Luke, I've been telling you this for 20 years. If you've gone to Element, I've been telling you this for 13 years at this point. That the way we understand what's happened, the Spirit moves, it's by understanding the gospel. Verse 6, because you are sons, is not divorced from verse 4 and 5. What you see is the Spirit comes on the basis of the work that Christ has already done. That's what the Spirit comes in. The Spirit of adoption is because of the work of Christ. And therefore, the experience of the Spirit will be on the basis of that work and our understanding of that work. So what the Spirit will do is move us to understand the gospel better. That's what He's doing. And you're probably thinking, what does that mean? Okay, I think it means we got to think about it. we got to meditate on it, on who Jesus is and what he has done. We take that truth of verse 6, we begin to pray on it, and we don't just say, God hit me with an experience, because we're not asking for an experience. We want God's Spirit to affirm the conviction of what Christ has done in our life of our sonship. So we meditate, and we worship, and we praise God for what he did through the Son. We look towards the work of Jesus. The work of the Spirit is not to get us all worked up into a frenzy where we're rolling around and screaming and doing a bunch of weird stuff. The work of the Spirit is to move us to a place of deep assurance of our sonship, of our daughtership with God Himself. That is when we truly begin to cry out to God. Now, I think here's the reality. I think any person who calls themselves a Christian feels very assured of their salvation when they're doing all the right things, right? I'm living the right way. I'm saying the right things. I'm doing all the good things. Oh, look how great I am. And we start to look like the prodigal. I think that when our lives are a mess, not that I want your life to be a mess, okay, but many times our lives are messes. When our life is a mess, is I think that reminds us so much better of our salvation, than anything else. We have a tendency to look and view and judge other people when their lives are a mess. 
in that place, I think that's when God moves so deeply and so strongly to remind us that our salvation can never be based upon our own righteousness. This is why we come to Jesus. We become centered in Christ. One person wrote one of my favorite lines. I Googled it. I can't figure out who wrote it. It wasn't me. But they said this, assurance is the mainspring of the Christian life. Do you know assurance is something that nobody in any other religion on this world actually has because you're not allowed to have assurance because you never know if you're good enough? The secret, so to speak, of the Christian life of joy is that when you mess up, because our righteousness doesn't come from us, it comes from God, we are still assured of our adoption. We are still assured of being in the family of God. Our adoption comes from God, not us. And this means our lives can actually be lived in an experiential way with the assurance because we are God's children. And I know people will say, I haven't experienced anything like that in my life. Well, let me ask you some questions here. Do you pray? And I'm not saying you do this and God gives you this, but we talked about last week. Prayer is stepping into relationship with God, spending time with Him. Do you pray? Do you spend time with God? Are you persistent? Do you read the scriptures and say, Lord, show me yourself. Show me your glory. I want to know who you are. Because today a lot of people say, I don't feel God. God, let me feel this. And we just keep doing the same old thing. We don't spend any time with the God who made us. We don't spend any time walking in the sonship that we've received. And if you want to start to move to a place where you do experience these things, spend some time with God. Do we place everything in our lives truly before Him? Jonathan Edwards once said that people that don't have God's Spirit can still feel when God's Spirit moves in power. He goes, but with God's Spirit, we also see His beauty. We see that God is beautiful. We find the thought of His holiness and grace beautiful. Guys, it is not about our experience. It's about Him which leads us to that experience of understanding adoption in a real way. And I know today might have been a little dense for you, and I hope it wasn't. I I hope that it kind of makes sense because Paul is trying to move these people who are so unsure about their salvation and their lives that they're trying to be like, I'm going to follow the law. That's going to really make God love me. That's going to bring me to his family. And Paul's saying, no, your assurance doesn't come from all of those things. Your assurance comes from what's already been done. The Son has done the work. You believe. You're in the family of God. God sends His Spirit, and it happens simultaneously. You are a son, and the Spirit comes in to do this work, and the work of the Spirit in our lives sometimes ends up being really slow as He moves and changes us to begin to understand the work that has already been done by Christ Himself, that we get to be children of God. We get to walk in this world as children of the great King who made everything. And so today, I'm going to invite you to come to the place of communion. If you are new, we do not pass communion throughout the room. What we do is we have it in a place where you actually have to get up and take communion yourself. You, you break the cracker to remind you of Christ's body that was broken. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice that reminds you of his blood that was shed for you and me because of what he himself did. Jesus says you do this in remembrance of me. And so this is a place where we come and we lay down all those fears all those places that we are trying to be self-assured in what we do, trying to say, look how good I'm doing, and simply come to a place and say, nothing to, nothing to that I bring, only to the cross that I I cling. That's that's it. It is what Christ has done, period. And this is what we remember here, that our assurance is because of what Christ has done. I mean, I don't know what, what your last week, month, year has been like, but I can tell you there's lots of places that I could point to in my life where there are certain things that are just a mess. And again, it's in those moments where things are a mess and I'm like, God, what am I doing? And, and God's just like, look, I still saved you. 
I still love you. I'm still calling you to myself. You're still my child. So let's get up and start living and walking together. And, and it's beautiful and it's freeing when we understand it, but I think it's also hard to live in because we want so bad to be the ones who figure it all out, who do all the right things so that God is like, okay, you're good enough now. I really love you. You know, it's like, that's, that's what I like. God to be like, good job, buddy. But really, even when I'm a mess, God still says, you are assured that I love you because the work my son has done, it's not about your work. And I think at communion, we remember that today that we lay all of ourselves before all that he is. And if you need prayer, maybe you are someone who thinks that God only loves you because you do all the right things, that you are like the Galatians and you're, and you're all scattered like, do I do this, do I do that, what, what do I do? And you want someone to pray with you about what the gospel is and to maybe walk you through to a place that understands God's great saving love over you. They would love to do that. They can be in the lounge right across the way. You can go doing, during music, you can go after service, you have questions you can go and talk to them. They'd answer those as well. I want to be able to pray for you. Uh, we are a church that believes in being generous and giving. And so if you would like to give, there's offering boxes in the side wall. You can give online. We do not pass a plate, though, because we believe that giving is a response to what God has done. Just like taking communion, just like prayer, just like singing, it's a response. When we see the goodness and the generosity of God towards us to make us his sons and daughters, that we become a generous people. And I invite you to grab those sermon notes, take those questions in there, talk to one another about those, and maybe come to the place where we can encourage one another to understand that we are a people who are assured of our adoption because of what Christ has done, not because of what we do. And I love that this is where Paul takes this now when he starts walking in these places because he wants the Galatians to live and walk in freedom. He, he'll get to chapter 5, and he goes, it's for freedom's sake that Christ has set you free. And is we get to live in freedom because our adoption is not based upon what we do. It's based upon what he has done. And that leads us to be a people who get to live in joy and grace and life. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would take and move us to understand our adoption and what that actually means. It's so easy, I think, in, in our own minds to get off track and think that we are earning our way to sonship, daughtership status. And yet it is a status that has simply been given to us by what you've done. We trust your provision that brings us in. And I ask that you would teach us how to rest in your goodness so that we would stop seeking and striving and learn to live in relationship with you. I ask that we wouldn't be a people who just look for an experience and have the feels of certain things, but we would look to deepen relationship with you. We would look to understand our sonship better by listening to the leading of your spirit. And that we would be those, as we begin to understand it, that we would then live out in this world as your ambassadors so people would see who you are by how your children live. And that there would be a grace and a hope and a love that is known among your children that would then be extended to those around us, that there is this invitation that we get to make to the world around us 
that everybody can come in. Everybody is welcome to be part of your family. So teach us to be ambassadors of that as we live as your children in this world. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. So we drop the curtains. Just take a moment. And if you have never asked God in your life to move you to a place of understanding the assurance of your sonship, your daughtership, your adoption in him, ask him to begin to do that. And maybe ask him in the coming day, coming week, coming year, the, the ways that you can step into that relationship to have it begin to grow so that as you go out into this world that's going to pull you this way and that, that you'd be centered in knowing the assurance that you have as being a child of God. Again, ask him to show you what that looks like and maybe what ways that your relationship with him can deepen as you walk with him you know, throughout the rest of your life, but especially maybe throughout this week as you kind of remember what we talk about today and the great gift that we have been given by being able to be children of God.